You might have noticed as you came in that I brought some uh, visual aids for this uh, talk. This is a uh, bottle from uh, Origins Cosmetic Company. They make a cosmetics that I like. and This is face cream, and it's called um, A Perfect World. <laughs> and um, it's a... So however much people are using it, the world is in a lot of difficulty. <laughs> so what I want to talk about at some point tonight is that what's perfect about the world always is that it's lawful, that uh, whatever is happening is happening because other things are happening or have happened. And it's very comforting to know somehow that there is a lawfulness about what comes to pass because it means that what actions we do now will make a difference in the future, and the future is based on the actions that are happening now. So I really rely on the sense of its lawfulness, not its capriciousness, to console me. So that'll stay here, and we'll use that. I also have three tea bags. Uh, these are tea bags from... Uh, a new tea company that uh, suggests by the name of its particular teas the flavors that uh, by uh, drinking these different teas you can invoke this quality in yourself. So I have brought three teas that if they actually invoked would uh, do the whole job for us and we would not have to do the practice in this particular way. This one is calm. This one is awake. And this one is passion. So, here we are. Would that we could do it with tea. (laughs) So, I noticed in all the interviews today and yesterday that the most asked question when people come in is, uh, am I doing this right? So, uh, first of all, I wanted to say that you cannot do it wrong. So, everyone... If you asked or didn't ask, I told you, if you were with me, you can't do it wrong. Everything really hangs on intention. And you all came here with the intention to see more clearly and be more open-hearted. You knew that about the teachings that are part of this path. So you already came with that intention. We can't pay attention to our lives wrong. That doesn't work. There are sometimes practice ways that we can pay attention that are uh, more skillful than others. And I'm hopeful that in our private interviews and in our teaching together, we, t- we share with you some of the skillful ways to pay attention. But the intention itself is enough. You can't do it wrong. The other thing I want to talk about is what is it? When people say, am I doing this right? What is the this that they're talking about? I feel so strongly about talking about what the Buddha taught as not sitting or walking, but as paying attention in all the ways that we could possibly be in our lives, sitting and walking, standing, moving about. That's about it. That covers all the ways. It's also the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta of uh, the teaching of mindfulness, 
which is the practice that we teach here. It's one of the two practices that we teach here. The central practices that are really the teaching practices of the Pali Canon, of the earliest um, teachings of the Buddha compendium, are the practices of mindfulness and metta, practice of attentiveness, and the practice of open-heartedness in all situations. I actually think they're quite the same. The form of practice, as you know, is different in the metta, where we make particular invocations, particular resolves for the well-being of people. But actually what we're doing is we're using our connections to people, the fact that we love and we have heart connections to people, to connect us with our basic goodness. That's the technology of metta. And we're using this particular practice of mindfulness, of paying attention, to really discover how it is that this extraordinary mind-body combination works and which of its habits tend in the direction of happiness and which of its habits don't tend in the direction of happiness so that we can live happier lives. You know, recently... uh, someone began to read to me the first page of a new book by the Dalai Lama. And um, the, the first sentence of the book began, the purpose of life is, and I thought for sure it was going to say to serve. You know, that seemed a setup for the purpose of life is to serve. And the Dalai Lama is selfless in his service for others and Do you know the sentence? It says, the purpose of life is happiness. I was surprised, but not after I thought about it for a while, because I thought that serving and happiness is the same. That the ability to be able to serve means that we are not so caught up in our own stuff that we can look out and say, there's a world out there, and it's in trouble, and it's in pain, and I can help it out in this way or this way or this way. And the helping is the antidote to the pain. And the helping and the noticing the people out there is the antidote to the pain of being caught and constricted around one's own story. So really, the ability to be able to serve means that we're not so caught in ourselves. It means we're really happier. What the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago He described as uh, one thing and one thing only. Come to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And some of you I know are new new to Buddhism, new to this practice, new to this place. So you may not know that 2,500 years ago a um, person named Siddhartha Gautama Uh, left his uh, family, actually a royal family, in comfortable circumstances to undertake the renunciate life in order to discover for himself the response to the natural suffering that's built into living a life. His own awakening after years of practice years of practice with two particularly skilled different teachers both of whom he left when he had achieved the same level of attainment as both of them been invited to teach with each of them and he said you know I have all these I've cultivated all these 
capacities of concentrated mind and I still have not discovered the end of suffering, the cause of suffering. Went off by himself in the legend. Um, he came to Bodhgaya and uh, having taken some nourishment from someone who offered him a meal, sat down under the tree, the bow tree in Bodhgaya with the steadfast resolve not to get up until he was enlightened, until he understood. I love that. When I tell that to you, my hair all stands on end. I'd like to tell you that I sometimes sit down and I say to myself, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. And the truth is, when I tell that to people, they usually laugh, as you did, as if to say, surely you don't really imagine you're going to do that, Sylvia. Because they know that the Buddha by the time he came there, had not only so cultivated those concentration factors amazingly, he had presumably in many, 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 many previous lives so completely purified his heart that it was free of taints and he was just ready when he sat down to achieve that final breakthrough of understanding. So when people laugh at me when I say I make that same resolve, I don't really, really think I'm going to get up enlightened forever. But, you know, I love to make that resolve. And I figure I don't lose any points by making that resolve. (laughs) And it wakes up my mind. I don't get scolded for making the resolve like it's hubris. How could you make a resolve like that? Why not make a resolve like that? But it was, I love to think about the fact that the Buddha was a human being, just like us. And I may not get up enlightened for the whole rest of my life, but I have enlightened moments, ones in which I see clearly. Normally, when I sit down with that resolve, I soon see clearly. And maybe I see clearly for a little while, but not forever, but for however long. That's that much ahead. It's a wonderful thing to do. I invite you to do that. Sit down and do that. This morning, someone came into an interview uh, this morning and said, you know, uh, I'm doing all right, I suppose, but nothing very much is happening. You know, I, I feel all right. I'm sitting. And I was sitting this morning, this person told me, I was sitting this morning, and my body didn't hurt, and, but it was plain. I was just sitting there. And I could feel my breath coming and going. Plain, it was just happening. And thoughts were coming and going. I could feel my body in different places doing different things. I was just sitting there. Nothing much was happening. They, you think I'm doing anything? I said, I think so. You know, I think if you look at that, and she described the moment to me again, and she did. I said, would you say about yourself in that moment you were content? I said, yeah, I was pretty content. I said, really, this is a moment of insight. It is an insight into the third noble truth of the Buddha. First noble truth is that suffering is the fabric of life. It just We go from one suffer to the next, from one neediness to the next neediness to the next neediness. Something is always challenging us. I think, by the way, you know, there's only one Dharma talk. Every night we sit down and each of us says, and now I'll talk about A, B, or C, or X, or Y. And it sounds like a different topic, but... Truth to tell, it's all the same topic. The topic is, how are we going to do this life inevitably challenged in a way that's graceful and open-hearted? 
so that we don't suffer and other people don't suffer. That's the name of every Dharma talk, but it wouldn't be interesting if we said that all the time. So we have to, and actually it's helpful to arrange it by lists and categories. But Truly that's it. When the Buddha had his experience of enlightenment and uh, consolidated that by staying in the vicinity of Bodh Gaya for some time and then going out, leaving there, and meeting some um, monks, five monks who were former comrades of his in practice, who uh, said, uh, in uh, who in the story are said to have said, here comes that, uh, well, I don't know if it says good for nothing monk Gautama, but here comes that monk Gautama who gave up the serious life and left and let's not talk to him. And uh, the story goes on to say that as they neared him, they saw about him some radiance that was so clearly um, a sign that he knew that they, in fact, stopped and did talk to him. And he talked to them. And he said, this is how it is. And he explained the Four Noble Truths. He said, this is how it is. Life is inevitably challenging. Everything is dukkha. doesn't mean everything is miserable. Everything is awful. It means everything is unreliable, unsatisfactory, over some period of time. There are certainly moments in life where it seems perfect. It's just lovely. Everything is great. You know, in a soap opera, when the scene ends and a person says, I'm so happy, I'm going to be happy the rest of my life, you know that they're going to have the commercial and then they're going to come back and the first thing is someone is going to have an awful car accident <laughs> or something is going to happen. And we laugh at that, but it's, it's, it's actually true. That's what happens. Sometimes it's even worse than that. Then, then it's great and it gets bad. Um, student at Spirit Rock came to talk to me last uh, last week, and she uh, is a person I know well, and whose practice I know well, and I admire a lot and respect a lot. And she said, "You cannot believe what's happened to me in the last three weeks." And various things. She has some very worrisome physical conditions that have to be checked out, and this not good thing has happened in her family and this other tremendously disappointing thing has happened and something else that she was counting on didn't come through. And she said, well, she said, I'm taking some courage in the fact that it couldn't possibly get worse. So we looked at each other and she said, well, I'm not so sure. You know, we laughed. And I got, I'm sad to say, I got an answer machine message later that day that she'd fallen asleep at the wheel going home. And wrecked her car and no one had been in the car that she hit and she her back hurt a little bit but not bad but she left me a message and she said remember we laughed about it couldn't get worse it got worse it's a very fragile life we have fragile bodies and fragile relationships they don't last forever nothing lasts everything is always changing that's really the meaning of that dukkha that insubstantiality under that meaning, and additional layers of meanings of dukkha, are, there are many things in life that are inherently painful. There are all those beautiful things, but there are things that are inherently painful. Uh, the classic old age, sickness, and death. But really, if you make it to old age, sickness, and death, many people are sick and die before old age, or in pain before old age. And we are separated from everything that we love, or they from us, at some point. 
And what's more, separated from hopes that didn't work out and dreams that we hoped were going to come true. And It's hard to be a person. My grandfather used to say that. He said it in a particular inflection. I'm translating from the Yiddish. He used to say, you had to take a big sigh first. He usually did it right after some bad news had happened or he'd had something and was pulling himself together. He'd say, it's very hard to be a person. I think it is very hard to be a person with affective bonds. We care. And we wouldn't want to not care. If somebody came and said, here's a magic pill, you can take this pill, take it or leave it, we wouldn't any of us take it. I don't think so. We are willing to buy into the game of life and hope for the best and enjoy the beauty, even that it's inevitably challenging all the time. We have endless needs. Staying content is an endless project. You probably noticed that while you're here. I mean, here we are. It's a lovely setting. The weather has even been lovely. Not too hot, not too cold. It's kind of like the three bears, too hot, too cold. It isn't. It's perfect. Not too hot, not too cold. Just the right season. Pleasant surroundings. Mostly everybody has a private room. Everything pleasant. Except we all bring our minds with us. And the minute we arrive, everything else is okay. So the mind takes over. Also, even when we, we even when we're not here, it's very hard to stay contented and um, appreciative of how amazing it is to be alive. Um, a year or more ago, um, my uh, uh, my friend Jack Cornfield uh, had a new book published and. Um, there was a book party in the Bay Area to celebrate his new book, and uh, I knew that uh, our friends Davine and Alan, who live in uh, Los Angeles, were going to fly up for the book party and stay overnight and uh, go to the book party and stay overnight and then go back to Los Angeles the next day. I didn't go to the party. I was at, away on holiday in Lake Tahoe. So I called the next day. I called Jack, and I said, how was the party? And he said, oh, it was great. It was a wonderful party. He said, but uh, Davine and Alan didn't come because Davine got food poisoning on the plane coming up. So I called Davine in Los Angeles and I said, you know, how, was, how are you? How was it? She said, it was, it was terrible. She said, you can't, it was awful. She said, I must have eaten something in the Los Angeles airport because it's only a 50-minute flight. But by the time we got to uh, Oakland, I was so sick, I could barely stagger off the plane, and the airport people had to call the paramedics, and the paramedics called an ambulance, and they took me to the hospital, and in the ambulance, the uh, whoever it was was setting up an IV had such a reassuring voice, and I said to that person, please, don't let me die, and he said, you won't die, and his voice was so reassuring, I think it was his voice that carried me through, I believed him, I trusted so much. And then she told me the rest of the story and what they had done at the hospital and how she'd gotten back to Los Angeles very, very late into the next morning. 
and then gone to sleep when she was home. And she said, but you know what? She said, um, we talked for a little bit about when she got up the following morning, she called the uh, airport to report which concession she eaten the food at, out of concern lest other people eat there. And she told me the story in all of its moment-to-moment detail, which is really important when a terrible thing happens. It's like a nightmare. You have to tell it over and over again to take out some of the alarm from it. So I was glad she was talking about it. I was glad she called the airport. She, we talked about just uh, how mysterious it is when something like that's going to happen and how extraordinary the, uh, it is that what grace it was, actually, that it was just a 50-minute flight. She said, suppose I'd been going to Hawaii or Japan. This way, at least we were landing, at least I could go to a hospital. We talked about grace, we talked about mystery, we talked about how amazing it is that these bodies, as fragile as they are, last as long as they do. We're thoroughly high on that conversation, on the fact that someone else's voice, filled with faith, could carry us through a dreadful situation. I was lifted up by the conversation. She was excited to tell me. She said, you know what, though? She said, I want to tell you a silly thing. She said, uh, this morning when I got up, after I'd slept several hours, I weighed myself. (laughs) And I'd only lost a half a pound. (laughs) And I thought for sure five pounds. (laughs) We can be so filled with the magic of living the mystery of karma, thanksgiving and gratitude, and one nanosecond later, <laughs> get trapped and fall again into, into a habit. We get trapped by a notion, get trapped. It's very hard to keep it together all the time. You think about sometimes when I'm someplace teaching and uh, someone, uh, and they don't know me. You, you, you probably know me a little bit one way or another. But sometimes I'm in, some, I'm in Des Moines or in Kansas City and giving a talk and people will say, uh, mistakenly imagining that uh, I have it together more than I do. Um, they'll say, how does it feel to have peace of mind all the time? <laughs> and I say to them, I wish I knew. Um, because I am the same one nanosecond away from dismay and concern. And I think it's amazing. I tell people that I am two words away from uh, the most extraordinary and exalted mind state crumbling into nothing. And then they look to see what are the two words. And I say, well, the two words have to be preceded with the phone ringing. And ring, ring, and you pick up the phone. And someone says in a not right voice, hello, Ma. <laughs> the most exalted mind state falls apart at that point because of the attachments of my heart. And we all have it. It's not about keeping exalted. It's about keeping a heart that's gracious, that's able to say, wow, 
look at that. I got caught again. I was way appreciative. It was wonderful to be appreciative. I really got it that things come and go, that the world is just the way it is because it's just the way it is. I was enjoying that so much, and here I am back in Pui. Wish that didn't happen. I wish that hadn't happened to me. Once again, I think very much about reborn as I don't know what happens after this lifetime and cycles of rebirth. I, I know something about the teachings about it, but I don't know how that works. But I think I am reborn into suffering many times a day. Every time I'm caught in a lust, in a greed, in an annoyance, in an irritation. It's a very full-time job to keep your heart open, keep appreciating. It's very hard. I think that's what we're doing. I think another way to say what the Buddha taught was that he taught, um, sounds a little bit when I say it, that uh, as if he were a physician, but I think of him as a physician. He taught... He taught this practice of paying attention so that we could remember that kindness is our fundamental nature and that when we're able to contact that kindness and respond from that place graciously, opening to our experience whatever it is, then we don't struggle and we don't suffer. That's really what he taught about the end of suffering. He taught that it was possible to heal from a wounded heart not by trying to forget about it, but by, as you are doing, all of you in one way or another, because we've all been wounded by this or that or the other until now, disappointed in different ways, that the healing comes from feeling it, from feeling the disappointed, remembering it, and from recognizing that it could not have been other. really very simple to say that the, the whole of the Dharma is the ability to say, I would have wanted other, but it's like this. And to really be gracious about it, not fight with it. That discovering that graciousness is ultimately what heals, not fighting. Being compassionate to oneself and to other people. We are all just trying so hard to do this life. It's very hard to be a person. And in the Buddhist cosmology, it's the best possible thing to be. In all of the realms, there are realms of deities and angels and realms of uh, lower realms, animals, realms that are called um, realms filled with or peopled by, or filled with, would be better to say. When you make the meta meta resolves, you say, for all those in woeful realms, so woeful realms. But here's this human realm, where we have uh, bodies, just like animals, with nervous systems, so that we lust, and we fear, we startle very easily. And we also love, preferentially. We have affective bonds. We care. That's an extraordinary human capacity. 
It gives us the extraordinary ability to take care of each other. In the end, comes to be the antidote to the suffering that's inherent and inevitable in life. When people ask the Dalai Lama, what's your religion? He says, my religion is kindness. And uh, you might think to yourself, everybody's is. Actually, it's true. Everybody's is. The major religious traditions that have endured through time are really based, all of them, on a message of loving and kindness. When the message is not clear, I think it's the messenger that's not transmitting it clearly. I think the original message and the original messenger teaching. Because how can there be one, more than one truth and more than one heart? It's really very hard to be a person either awaken to the fact, we know it, we don't have to awaken to the fact that caring is the antidote to being in pain. I think we're strung to care. Somebody said it the other night, I don't remember if it was James or Sally, said when we're not frightened or overwhelmed or confused, we care. We don't have to take lessons in friendliness. We have to take violin lessons or needlepoint lessons because we don't come equipped to do that. But we don't have to take friendship lessons or caring lessons. If we didn't have that innately built into us, we would not have survived as a species. We have to care. I also think that each major religious tradition that survived has a technology for accessing the natural caringness of the heart, for um, developing the compassion that's innate to human beings. And in this tradition, we have these dual, extraordinarily wonderful practices of paying attention and responding with lovingness, of mindfulness and of metta. Sometimes people ask me, uh, in your day, how how much time should a person in their day practice mindfulness? What percent of the day should they be practicing mindfulness? What percent of the day should they be practicing metta? So you know, of course, the answer is 100% of the day you practice mindfulness and 100% of the day you practice metta because they are not um, other than each other. It doesn't mean that 100% of the day you sit on a zafu and pay attention in the particular way that we're doing here, but 100% of the day you pay attention You try to. And 100% of the day, we try to cultivate an open heart. Try to. I mean, the open heart is what makes us comfortable, not other people. We're always trying to be comfortable. I think sometimes what we discover is the habits that we've had that we thought would make us comfortable don't work very well. And then we change those habits. I like very much that, uh, I think it was James the other night, uh, gave the definition of mindfulness, and he said it's a balanced appreciation of what's happening now, outside and inside. I like it very much that in uh, uh, the heart of Buddhist meditation, wonderful text and commentary about the 
sutta on mindfulness, the explanation that comes right after the explanation of mindfulness, the discussion that comes right after the discussion of mindfulness, is a discussion of what's called clear comprehension of purpose. That the mindfulness doesn't end with knowing what's happening, which sounds like it's passive. Yep, I see what's happening. This is what's happening. Okay. It really is seeing what's happening with enough balance in the heart and mind so that there's energy left to respond, to bring to the next moment. If I make a prayer that's in mindfulness terms, the prayer would be, may I be awake to this moment so that I will have energy to meet the next moment with a balanced, open sensitivity. May I be here. I was very pleased to see uh, uh, in uh, the manuscript copy of my friend Sharon Salzberg's new book on faith, which will come this summer, uh, that one of the definitions of of um, one of the translations of the Pali word for faith is also hospitality. And I think about that. I like that very much. I learned that when I read her book the other day. It means, for me anyway, uh, um, an openness to what's happening. It's not... Um, it has to me so much the sense of non-struggle. Not everybody who comes to visit you is somebody that you would have invited. But it's troublesome to hide behind the door and pretend that you're not there because then they surely come back. You know, it's... It's wonderful to be able to have an open door policy. Things come, and then they go. That kind of faith that knows that things come and go, and therefore everything is manageable. Manageable and feasible are some of the words that I like the most. When the Buddha taught, he said about what he taught, I promise you, I would not ask you to do this practice if it were not feasible, if it weren't true, if it didn't work. I like that a lot. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about how this particular form here works. If in our lives we are practicing 100% of the time and we're not sitting on zafus all day or doing slow walking, but in fact engaged in our lives going about. How is it that paying attention begins to allow us to see on all the levels of our being what's true? How do we become mindful? And when we are mindful, what are the insights that accrue? That's really what I want to talk about. I'll talk about it um, on the cushion or in the monastery because that's where we are this week. But we're really doing the same thing as we do in our lives, just slower and with less things to do so it levels the playing field a little bit so you can see a little bit more clearly, more easily. I think that there are levels of seeing. When my teachers first told me about that, levels of insight, I began to think... uh, since the, the third level of insight that they suggested to me was spiritual insights, I thought that the first level and then the second level 
with the lesser valuable levels, because you know you work up to the ultimate level and spiritual insight. Now that's really the liberating insight. These beginning insights are. But I, I've decided that I, I, I'm, I rather say that any insight is valuable. Any insight that illuminates something that we have not seen before, that makes something conscious that we did not know, that makes us more transparent to ourselves, so we're less likely to get stuck. Every insight is valuable. I think that in in the end, I end up saying those three levels of insight just in the same way that they did, because I can't say three things at one time. So, now Also because, when, since you've been here, you may have already noticed that just by being quiet, just by the simple lifestyle, it's possible to see one's physical reality in a different way that, uh, than we do in our regular rushing around life. I think perhaps because we're rushing around and we need to get things done, we probably shut down our sense doors so that we can get our tasks done. And since here, we don't have very many tasks. And in fact, I remember saying the instruction, walk around, go outside and walk around like an antenna. Walk around with your ears and your eyes and your nose and your whole of your body, feeling the world as you walk through it. That I'm imagining that many of you have discovered that your body is livelier, that one way or another. You feel it more. I remember thinking to myself, wow, look, it's woken up my body. I think my body is always awake. I think what I met it with when I discovered that is the consciousness to recognize it. It's alive. It's tingling. Close your eyes for a minute. Just where you are. Don't sit specially. Feel your whole body. Feel all that moving? You know just where you are. You even know what posture you're in without looking. It's amazing having a body. You can open your eyes. Walk around outside. Sometimes people say, you know, the colors are brighter. Or the edges are sharper. Aldous Huxley used to talk about cleansing the doors of perception. Talked about... um, First of all, the the use of uh, psychedelics. But I think we cleanse the doors of perception by paying attention. It's like someone just wash the windows and see a little bit more clearly. I discovered on the first retreat that I was on that um, I, uh, since the meditation hall was uh, far away from the dining room was in the same building, but you had to walk a very long corridor to get down there. And I began to discover that I could smell the oatmeal further and further down the corridor. Oatmeal doesn't have a big smell, you know. It's not, I began to think about that, um, that my uh, smelling capacity had woken up. Of course, I, you know, I, I knew, and I certainly go ahead and tell you that if... Um, Smelling the oatmeal at a distance with the only benefit of this practice is not enough because it's hard to do this. But I think really it was an example for me about the fact that we can wake up to a world, a physical world, 
that's way more interesting than the one that we normally inhabit. Do you know, in The Wizard of Oz, which I'm reading over and over and over again, because I'd be, each time I read, I underline more. I was just showing James, I've got it overlined with yellow, because I think it's so much of a Dharma text that uh, Dorothy begins her spiritual journey in uh, Kansas, where everything is gray. And remember the descriptions in the beginning, it's all gray as far as you can see. And Aunt M was gray, and Uncle Henry was gray, and everything was gray. But when she lands in her new world, as she begins to make this inner journey, she has an inner journey. It's all bright colors, and the the the, uh, the brook is babbling and making wonderful music through green rushes. You just see it as you read it. I think that's what happens to us. We wake up, and not only can we appreciate the physical world more and appreciate our physical body for the extraordinariness of how it works, but I think in the most um, ordinary way, um, or extraordinary way, at least for me, as I be, as when I am attentive to how my body feels, I treat it better. I take better care of it. I feed it better. I let it rest at appropriate times. Some uh, teacher of old, I can't remember which one it was, said that uh, when asked what is the secret of enlightenment, said sleep when tired, eat when hungry. Um, and, uh, you know, it may have it turned out to be like the quintessential Dharma summation. But I think that's that's certainly one of the things that happens. We treat ourselves better, more kindly, out of compassion for the fact that, and out of gratitude for the fact that they are extraordinary to last as long as they do, however long they do. I say the third of my metta resolves, the one for health, or everybody says them differently. Strength. I say may my physical body support me with strength. I say that because I want to be able to uh, acknowledge that whatever health I have left at any point, I'd like to really appreciate that and use it up to the last minute. It'll be less and less up to the last minute. I have less endurance now than I did 30 years ago, but I'd like to use what I have and appreciate it. So the first thing we really tune into is the physical body. And the next thing, as Sally was saying last night, is uh, we begin to see what's going on in our personal minds. Um, somebody said to me not long after I'd begun my practice, I was teaching in another city and um, met a, a person at a conference who I'd gone to school with oh, 20, 25 years before. In fact, an old boyfriend of mine. So one of the things he liked to do is be impressive to uh, people in that situation. Um, so we were talking about our lives, and I was telling him about my newfound practice. And I told him about the rigors of practice, about how early we got up in the morning, and um, how late we stayed up. And in those days, tea was really tea. We didn't have supper. We had tea. 
and on a good day, an apple with the tea. And so I felt like I, kind of like it was outward bound, and that he would be so, <laughs> and that he would be so impressed. And uh, I told him the whole thing, and he said afterwards, he said, "I can't believe that for two weeks you sat alone with your mind." And really, that's really uh, what's hard about it. We sit down, and there's no one there but us. And we have to hear, as Sally was saying last night, the ten top tunes <laughs> of what are playing, uh, the ten thoughts that still mercilessly <laughs> grab the mind and keep us caught. It's as if it comes up and we think, oh no, here it is, I was so comfortable if only that had not come into my mind. And often they're thoughts that are views that are completely untrue, but they just live with us. That's really the second part of uh, Dorothy's journey. You know, It's actually the main part of the book, as far as I can tell, is that everyone on that journey is looking, is feeling the need to have something that they think they need, that they don't need. The story they've told themselves isn't true. The scarecrow who needs brains, he feels, makes all the wise decisions. He figures out how they should get out of difficulty. The tin woodman who says, alas, now that I'm tin, I can't love anymore, cries at the slightest sad thing, steps on a beetle at one point, and is so overcome with tears that he rusts and can't move, and no one can figure out what to do with him until the scarecrow, who presumably has no brains, figures out to oil him. So they oil him and he can move. And all of it is a great satire on the fact that we think we need something that we don't actually need, that we actually have. But we've believed a story. If I only had a brain. Do you remember, the, the probably remember the song from the musical, uh, I would while away the flowers, converse, the hours conversing with the flowers if I only had a brain. And I don't remember what the Tin Woodman sings and the lion. If he only had a heart. But what would he do if he only had a heart? <laughs> if I only had a heart. <laughs> so now you have to go for the lion. <laughs> Bert Law, go. <laughs> what? He needed courage. What? You remember the song? Work on it. <laughs> but here they, the three of them have told themselves stories that aren't true and feel a tremendous lack. We tell ourselves stories that aren't true all the time. The only story that's true is that we're exactly who we are and we couldn't be other. That story is true. And... Had we different parents, uh, different circumstances, different backgrounds, we'd be a different person. But we're always trying to, I think, often, not always, but often, trying to make ourselves something else. I go by the supermarket magazines every month, and I think to myself, it is an eternal battle to lose that extra five pounds. <laughs> every, every magazine cover, and as you check out, says the new and improved super non-fail way to lose 30 pounds by Memorial Day. <laughs> Short of a grave illness. I don't even think a grave illness would do it. But it's a, a, a national preoccupation with I'd be better if I were 
slimmer um, before summer or before the holidays or before whatever. So we really, it's easy to get trapped in what we think should be different about us. Not good enough is the most difficult of stories. I think the most um, vocal member of my own spiritual direction committee is my own voice. I have different people that I trust various parts of my life and my secrets and my journey to. And they all love me. I know that. I wouldn't trust them otherwise. But my voice is louder than anybody's and says, you should be doing better, Sylvia. Better than what? This is what I am. It couldn't be otherwise. Nor could it be otherwise with anyone. And when I remember that, I'm kind. There's a whole piece of this practice of paying attention, which is a whole other talk in itself. So I'll just tell it to you and we'll see. Maybe Friday. There is in this practice, um, as we pay attention, it is inevitable that a moral inventory, a spontaneous moral inventory, present itself. may have already started with you. From the most minor thing, I forgot to call somebody back, and I'll, to transgressions of uh, 35 or 40 years ago. One of my friends said that an entire retreat was spent recapitulating the ten worst, grievous, horrible things that he had done in his entire life, and how painful that is. And it's not because the, we're meant to suffer. It's because we're meant to see how difficult it is for us to realize, how painful it is to realize that we were off what we're meant to be, how happy we are when we live as the good people that we are, and how the pain that we cause ourselves, ourselves, not the other people, when we don't live up to the wonderful hearts of compassion that we are, lasts a lifetime until we recognize it and somehow make amends. The whole dimension of our psychological particular lives, and we have the whole dimension of the spiritual insights that are not particular to our lives, that are particular to everybody's lives. The insight of temporality. Everything changes. You know, um, when my teacher said, here are the three insights, and I said, no, no, don't tell me. I want to find it for myself. It's different to hear it than to discover it. We all know that everything passes. Everybody knows. This retreat was in the future. We signed up for it a long time ago. It came marching nearer, 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 nearer. Here we are right smack in the middle of it. It will march by, and then it will be a memory squiggle on a neuron somewhere. But it will have changed you. Something will happen. We are changed by the doing. But, you know, we don't actually... I don't. No, I'm going to say that back because I do more than I used to. To whatever degree I am able to connect with the fact that everything is changing, I am able more and more to be with difficult circumstances. They won't last. And I am able more and more to really pay attention to extraordinary circumstances because they won't last. And I am committed more and more to pay attention to all circumstances because I haven't got a moment to lose. And... There's no time to be alive except now. I'm never going to be alive except now. The first of the insights is temporality. The second is the insight about suffering. 
when we have an imperative that things must be a certain way, we suffer. When the imperative is gone, we don't. Letting go, telling somebody or telling oneself, you know, you should let go of this, is really not so helpful. <laughs> if we could, we would. It's actually, it actually is a hurtful remark to say to somebody, just let go. If they could, they would. Nobody purposely suffers. For myself, the key to being able to rest a little bit, not letting go, I will not let go of the fact that I would have wished it were otherwise. What I can let go is the imperative that it must be otherwise. And it happens through my sense of the truth of karma. It couldn't be otherwise. Nothing could be other than what it is. Everything is the result of whatever has ever happened everywhere. It's a cumulative karma for all of us. And the whole world ever and ever is responsible for it. And it's the whole world's merit as well. And the last of the insights has to do with karma as well. It has to do with cause and effect. It has to do with the, it's a perfect world. Um, it's a lawful cosmos. Everything happens because everything else is happening. We are breathing because the trees are still breathing and there's still enough trees to breathe and other green vegetation. The trees and everything green are giving us artificial respiration as we are giving it to them. We are keeping each other alive. Every single thing that I do makes a difference. Every single thing that you do makes a difference. Even every single thing that we don't do makes a difference. So knowing when to do and when not to do. But nothing is without consequences. Really the meaning of karma is action. Everything that we do or don't do has a consequence. It makes a certain amount of alertness in the mind. Say, whoa, really? Really? I think it doesn't, it, there's a very um, fine line between getting frightened by that awareness. The, the uh, Pali words for that awareness are hiri anotapa, moral shame and moral dread, recognizing that everything has consequences infinitely and that everything we do has consequences. There's a very thin line between becoming alarmed and becoming dedicated to kindness. I think it's the choice dedication to kindness that makes a difference. I think it comes from paying attention and seeing how much difficulty there is in the world. That's why I brought the three T's. The first T was um, calm because we want to calm down enough to be able to look out and look in. See the suffering in ourselves and the suffering in the world. And it's very hard to look at the amount of suffering in the world if we're not balanced enough because it's overwhelming or the suffering in ourselves because it's endless and awake because calm is not enough calm we might miss it we might become indifferent too calm might be somnolent that's why the Buddha taught this particular practice which calls for us to be with something that's 
calming like breath or walking, like plain walking, enough so that we build a base of some balance in the mind. And when we say, as we already have begun to say, now look what's there. You have to do it from a cold start and calm down first, but now wake up. Look what's going on. Enough calm so that we can stand it and enough alertness so that we can see it. And enough balance and enough insight that will inspire in us the passion to do something. The Bodhisattva vow, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Though suffering is endless, I vow to end it. It's about the most passionate thing I can think of saying. I first heard it, I thought, well, you know, how could I address the numberlessness of beings and the endlessness of suffering? I can't. I can only address what's in front of me now and what's here in me now. And the only way I know, the way I know best to address it is with kindness and caring. Fundamentally, we're compassionate people. And that actually is what's liberation and freedom from suffering. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.